Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Our third sermon in the, the chapter here. We get one of the more um, bizarre stories in the Gospels here. This is a good one. Uh, one of those, you're like, is this in the Bible? Uh, I love those stories. Matthew chapter 17, verse 22, I would remind you, though, this was written a long time ago because the Spirit of God is the primary author of the Scriptures. He wrote it with you in mind, even today. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. They were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yeah. When he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, sorry, and when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Let's ask God's blessing. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have amazing stories of fish uh, that swallow people in the Bible and hear fish that have a coin in their mouth. What a weird story. Uh, We thank you that your word is always true. It's always profitable. And in fact, even more than that, this one is designed for us today. Would your spirit be pleased to speak that we would hear for Christ's sake? Amen. I want to teach you a new vocabulary word. Now, already I just lost you, right? Oh, Michael, I don't want to learn vocabulary. It's Sunday morning. Well, no, this is actually an important one. It's from 2005 from a book uh, written by a Notre Dame philosopher named Christian Smith. He coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll say that again. Moralistic, three pieces, moralistic therapeutic deism. And you think, well, okay, what is that and why is it important? Well, I'm going to start with the why it's important, and then I'm going to work backwards to the what it is. Christian Smith was, uh, he is a philosopher at Notre Dame and a sociologist, and he had just spent uh, an exceedingly long period of time studying the youth of America, you know, the 20s and unders-ish in America. Uh, In 2005, his book kind of coming out on his studies of the soul of American teenagers and 20-somethings and teenagers, uh, he had come to the conclusion through his study 
that this term, the moralistic therapeutic deism, was the single most common religion in America. You think, well, that doesn't sound like a religion. I mean, we, we usually people categorize themselves as Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Mormon or things like that. Right? And Smith's argument was different. He said, no, in fact, actually, out of all of those things that call themselves religions, the largest kind of philosophical and theological commitment present in America is a commitment to moralistic therapeutic deism. And his argument is kind of big and very, very large. I'm going to reduce it to the point of maybe being a bit simplistic and a bit perhaps of a straw man. But what he argued is is that the primary religion in America is a religion in which a nice God exists to give me a good life. The short version of it is it's a moralistic God. It deals with just my actions. He doesn't deal with my heart. He doesn't deal with my soul. He doesn't deal with eternity. He deals specifically with actions. He's deist. He's not actively involved in who I am. But the primary reason for God's existence is therapy. It was the the therapy model of, of the world, the counseling model of the world that kind of leached over and filled religion. The result is you have a religion, a national religion, in which everybody goes to heaven, in which everybody is a good person, and the whole reason why I need religion is just to give me a better life. Now, Christian Smith published his book in relationship to the the teenagers of 2005, the 20 and below category. And interestingly, he published that, and that was his specialty field. And as the book got out, people started reading it and engaging this idea and realizing, oh, friend, you've actually not labeled our teenagers, you've labeled our country correctly. What is the most common religion in America? Well, moralistic, therapeutic deism. A God who exists to make my life better. Because ultimately, who is it all about anyways? (laughs) It's all about me. It's all about me. Life is always about me. It's all about me. We've been reading a book as a session. I always try to have the session reading something that's, uh, I think, useful. Sometimes they perhaps don't always agree with me on that one. Um, but we're reading a book now to Carl Truman's newest one in which he's uh, basically looking at kind of the history of American philosophy where we can arrive as a nation where a boy can say he's a girl and no one says that they're crazy. In the chapter we discussed at our last session meeting, um, he's dealing with a couple of, again, one interestingly a Notre Dame philosopher, uh, laying out a pattern of thinking in which they're arguing that the, the largest worldview dominating America right now is a worldview that's so preoccupied with the self that it loses track of reality outside. That it loses track of things that exist outside the person. So the greatest reality is me and my feelings. And the whole reason why you exist is just to affirm my feelings. To make me feel better about myself. Interestingly, this is simply the application of moralistic therapeutic deism. 
If God exists to make me feel better about myself, you exist to make me feel better about myself. And in fact, the Bible exists to make me feel better about myself. In fact, everything exists, exists to make me feel better about myself. And if it doesn't make me feel better about myself, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. This has been the most amazing thing to watch over the last really handful of years in our country as we're watching increasingly, this is, I got off all social media for this reason, amazing how commonly people just deny external reality uh, at the expense of their feelings. It doesn't make me feel good, therefore it must not be true. Really? I didn't know your feelings had anything to do with the truth. I thought feelings were a response to the truth. The great reality is we live in an era in which, according to Christian Smith, the most common religion, according to Truman and Reif and these others, the most common worldview, I would say the most common idea that I interact with is that everything outside of me exists to make me feel good. The problem is that idea is a total lie. The problem with that is that it it couldn't be further from the Bible. It couldn't be further from the truth. It couldn't be further from reality. In fact, the problem with that idea is that it is a poison that eventually kills the person who drinks it. Chapter 17, here where we are, frames out a different way to think about life. We're going to start in verse 24 and first kind of introduce the problem. This fish story is a crazy fish story, but it's very Jewish and very complicated. Uh, I I will say, this is one of the more complicated texts I've preached in Matthew. So you, you are going to need your thinking caps a bit. When they came to Capernaum, Well, that's significant. Capernaum is where Peter lives. Uh, It's where his mother-in-law lives. And by every indication, as best we understand, it's actually where Jesus lives at this point. Uh, That's going to be significant because Peter and Jesus are the two residents. Uh, The other disciples don't necessarily live in this place. They're uh, kind of excluded from the conversation. However, Peter and Jesus do. When they come into Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax approach Peter. Now, this tax is, ooh, it's a doozy. It's extremely interesting. See, it was a tax that's very well documented. We have it in other sources, even outside the Bible. We know exactly what it was. It was a tax that was levied upon all Jews to pay for the temple. In fact, we even know when it was. You were uh, taxed within a month prior to the Passover. Every adult male Jew had to pay this tax. We know exactly how much it is. It's here, obviously, the two drachma tax. We know exactly why. We actually even know kind of almost exactly how it came to be. The interesting thing, the thing that makes this so wonderfully complex, is that this is not a biblical tax. 
In fact, actually, it was presented as it was, but it actually wasn't. This is going to be really important. Use your brains for just a moment. Focus in. What had happened in the Old Testament was there was a pattern set for God's people to have to give tax to support the temple or to support the tabernacle. It was a pattern that had been set. We see it happen in Exodus chapter 30. There was a half-shekel tax set on all adult males to pay for the creation of the tabernacle. We see it in Nehemiah chapter 10. There's a third of a shekel tax that's levied on all adult male Jews in order to fund the creation of uh, the, the temple again, the restoration there. But the interesting thing is that both of those taxes were intentionally short-lived and had actually expired. They weren't binding anymore. They didn't exist anymore. They, they were gone. But somewhere along the way, the Jews had tried to revive a temple tax and been successful. And interestingly, this man-made tax, well, it's a bit hard to collect that, isn't it? Because it's a man-made tax. So it was intriguing what they did is they presented it like this was God's command. It wasn't. God had never commanded it. This is what makes this passage so unbelievably complex, is that the tax that's being talked about was a lie. It was a tax that people said God had commanded, but he never had. It was a a tax that they said was rooted in the Old Testament, but wasn't actually. In fact, it was so complex, they presented it, the Jews presented it like it was a binding tax that everybody had to pay. But interestingly, guess what happened? It wasn't binding, and you didn't have to pay, so what do you think happened? A lot of people didn't pay. I mean, would you pay taxes that were, you know, not mandatory? Most people don't. I mean, some people don't pay taxes that are mandatory, much less the voluntary ones. So the interesting thing is how the Jews then were forced to kind of enforce this tax. One of the commentators uh, uh, said they were forced to enforce it through reminders, challenges, and social pressures. I suspect... This is going to sound a little bit kind of familiar if you start thinking about it. Something that's being treated as a command from God that he never actually said. Something that's being treated as a moral right or wrong issue that he's never actually clarified. Something that They say you have to do, but you know you don't. And so the only way they can make you do it is to put so much peer pressure on you that you have to obey. Does that sound familiar at all? Does that kind of maybe a little bit sound like our current kind of cultural moment? Dealing with the mob of Americans? I mean, there's like 900 different illustrations of things that the Bible doesn't say necessarily are right or wrong, 
the church or the Americans as a whole kind of say, this is God's command, and if you don't do it, you're in the wrong. And the way it's enforced is in societal pressure and change. I mean, you don't believe me, just look at any kind of outspoken Christian athlete. And the stances that they've taken in the last three years and then they've had to walk them back because the sponsorship deals and the societal pressure and the pressure from the owners of the team have forced them into these kind of untenable situations. This tax is a mess because it is a man-made law that is presented as God's law which we normally call abominations. That's usually the word we use. So it's intriguing when they show up, they ask Peter the question, does your teacher not pay the tax? And it assumes in the grammar, Greek's able to do this, uh, it assumes the answer. It doesn't do this in the English quite as clearly. The assumed answer is that yes, Jesus does pay the tax. The way they verbalize the question, it is assumed that Jesus will. And you can almost even kind of imagine them being like, hand out, you know, does, does Jesus pay the tax? Like, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, know what I mean? It's time to pay the tax. We're ready for your money. Peter knows the answer. He doesn't even think about it. Well, of course he does. Of course Jesus pays the tax, which it really is an interesting thing to think about. A man-made law that's not a law, that's not made by the government, that's presented as if, it was, were, as if it were God's law and enforced unfairly. Well, of course he does. All right, so the, the, the problem we see in the passage already is that the tax itself is the problem. And I want you to understand the significance of this. What is Jesus going to do with a man-made law that the mob is enforcing? You have this kind of great moment. Peter answers. He kind of walks away. And 25, again, it's very clear in the grammar that as he's stepping into the door, Jesus is already talking. <laughs> Jesus is having a conversation with Peter. Peter just hadn't kind of fully entered the room yet kind of moment. Uh, again, we don't know how much Jesus heard or if this is supernatural knowledge, but he knows what's happening. What do you think, Simon? I love that question. You do think Peter's probably like, uh, I don't think I want to answer that right now. What are we talking about? Clue me in again what I'm supposed to think first and then I'll answer. Jesus gives an illustration to make his point. He uses a metaphor here, really. From whom do the kings of the earth take their tax, their toll? Do they tax their sons or do they take it from others, from foreigners, from those that are different? And it's a really kind of obvious illustration, but a little bit more complex in its application. The illustration is clear. Kings do not tax their own families. That's dumb. And if you're the king and you're collecting taxes from the entire nation, you do not tax your own children because you're taxing your own children to have the money go right back to you. 
It's a waste of time. It's a waste of energy. And in fact, you lose money because you have to pay the tax collectors and pay the people all to handle you. Your kids don't pay taxes if you're the king. Come on. Royalty never pay taxes. That's actually the answer Jesus gives is that royalty never pay taxes. That's the implied thing here. Do kings take taxes from their own sons, from those with royal blood, or do they take them from uh, the masses, the mob? Well, Peter knows the answer to that. Well, they don't tax their own blood. You don't tax the royal house. You, you tax the mob. You tax the bozos. You, you tax all of those people. You don't tax us. And Jesus here provides in his answer an amazing understanding for God's people of how we are to interact with policies and practices and the mob. In just a few short words, the sons are free. Those that have royal blood, those that belong to the house of the king, are not obligated to pay the taxes of that king. Likewise, those that belong to the house of King Jesus are not obligated to the nonsensical, non-divine, asinine cultural laws of a moment in time. put in a point form. God's children have true liberty and are freed from the customs of man. Now, I'm going to make my asterisk before I even start here. This is not talking about governmental laws. Jesus and the Bible are 100% clear. You are absolutely on the hook to obey all of the laws unless they actively make you sin, right? That's my caveat, If a a law is stupid, you have to obey it. If a law is bad for you but doesn't make you sin, you have to obey it. You do not get out from that. That That is absolutely the Bible's teaching. But what Jesus is talking about here is not interacting with the government. The government you have to obey unless they're actively making you sin. What he's dealing with here instead are kind of the cultural trappings of a nation, the kind of cultural moment of a nation, of the way that we think about how life is supposed to be done. And he's saying, if you belong to the kingdom of heaven... They have no hold on you. And the unfortunate reality, and in I guess many ways fortunate reality in the same way, God's taking care of us. I suspect it's going to become increasingly important that we meditate on this reality and we teach our children this reality. That the Twitter mob has no claim to you.
That the cultural mob that wants to condemn us or say, look, you are, are hateful people because you don't endorse my lifestyle. You're hateful people because you don't say I'm supposed to be whoever I want to be. Well, friends, we belong to a higher kingdom. We belong to a a higher king and we're freed from the laws of this kind of cultural moment. Again, if you, you read the news this week, you understand the extreme complexity of the political situation in California with their new Republican gubernatorial candidate. For those of you that are much older, you would know him as Bruce Jenner. For those of you that are much younger, you would not. And to think again of how the mob is going to interact with those who take a stand for that. That's your conservative candidate. Wow. There's a great sense of freedom here is that, look, Jesus is laying out for his people. We're we're freed from those cultural obligations. We don't belong to that. That's not our home. That's not our land. That's not where we belong. They can have those rules all they want. They can say you can't say hate speech all they want. They can define those things however they want. We're not captive to it. We're free. We're absolutely, completely, 100% free. That's why we confessed our faith using this portion of the Westminster Confession. It's absolutely marvelous. Again, many of us not knowing our grammar quite well enough to distinguish a comma from a semicolon, we can sometimes get a little confused. You need to go read it a little bit later. The semicolons kind of function as parentheses for different groupings. But look at what we're freed from. We're being delivered, currently being delivered from the present evil world. We're being delivered from the dominion of sin. We're being delivered from evil afflictions. We're being delivered from the wrath of God. We are free. We're free. Jesus' argument here is, understated and quick, but it's very strong. Simon is not held captive to the man-made laws of the Jews. I mean, you understand that if he walks back out there and says, I don't have to pay it, they're immediately going to say, you have to, or we're not going to let you come to church. You can't come to the temple. You know, they're going to scold him. They're going to say that he hasn't done his part, that he's not helping the temple. They're going to tell him that he's not part of the Jewish nation, that he's not behaving the way that Jews are supposed to behave, that he's not a part of the nation that he's belonged to. They're going to tell him all sorts of condemnation. And interestingly, Jesus is giving him endorsement. You're already free from all those things, Peter. They can say whatever they want to say. You belong to a higher kingdom. Now, if if most of us were writing this passage, we would kind of 
have some version of, at this point in the story, Jesus telling Peter to go off and tell them off outside, right? Can tell them they can go take a long walk off a short pier, and tell them where they can, you know, go find a better answer to that, not here. The most staggering piece of this entire passage are the words that come out of Jesus' mouth in verse 27. He's just laid out to them that they are free from all of the obligations of the cultural moment around them. He's just told them they are not to be held hostage according to the laws of man. He tells them they are not bound in any way by the laws of the Jews that claim divine authority but have none. And interestingly, what does he immediately follow it with? However, uh uh-oh. Not to, and the word here is scandalize. Not to scandalize them. Matthew likes to use this word. It's used four different ways primarily throughout the gospel. It usually means to give offense, to cause someone to sin, to trip someone up, or to make someone fall away. And intriguingly here, Jesus says not to scandalize them. Do it anyways. This is the part we don't like. right? You wanted me to stop the sermon at the end of the last point. You wanted me to stop the sermon at the point where Jesus says, hey look, you're free from everything that the world tells you. You're free from all man-made obligations. You're free from all of these things. And interestingly, what does Jesus immediately follow it with? Do not scandalize them. Go do it anyways. I don't like that. Well, let's okay. Let's back up a moment. Maybe this will help, I guess. No, it's going to make it worse. Who is Jesus talking about not scandalizing? Maybe, maybe he's saying, you know what, let's... We don't want other Christians to sin. Nope, actually, that's the wrong answer. However, in order to keep these tax collectors from being scandalized, in order to keep these people who are going to murder Jesus in just a little bit, in order to keep them from being scandalized, go do it anyways. In order to keep the priests who have rejected him every step of the way and are actively plotting his death, in order to keep them from being scandalized, go do it anyway. You see, the reality here is that he's laid out for God's people a principle that you are free from all of the obligations of man, but then he immediately couples it with something that binds our freedom, and that is the freedom to freely give it up. And the reality is, most of us, I think, in this room would happily and joyfully and willfully and delightedly give up some of our freedom for the people that are sitting near us and next to us. 
It's a sweet part of this church. I love you. You love me. We love each other. I know you. You would give up your freedoms for each other. I know you would. I've watched you do it. Problem is, that's not the category of person that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about those that by and large would be considered cultural enemies. He's talking about those that by and large would be treated as theological enemies. He's talking about those that for all intents and purposes are going to be on the opposite side of the aisle from his disciples in basically everything except for Rome. But don't scandalize them. You see, friends, this is where Jesus runs up against moralistic, therapeutic deism in a violent conflict. Because moralistic, therapeutic deism tells me that at my core, at the core of all of life, everything that is out there, including God himself, exists to make me feel better about myself, to make me have a better life, to help me have my best life now. And I'm free to do that. And interestingly, immediately after explaining that freedom is real, Jesus challenges his disciples to then freely give it up. To give it away. To treat their freedom with an open hand and to just let the wind blow it off. I'm thankful for expository preaching. I wouldn't preach this sermon. I certainly wouldn't have coupled it with the same sermon a month ago at the end of chapter 16, but the Spirit knows what He's doing. He's laid out in chapters 16 and 17 a presentation of Christianity that offends my very being because what it tells me is the heartbeat of Christianity is that Jesus saves me freely and then demands that I give up all claims to myself. I take up my cross, the the means of execution, and I execute my own freedoms, my own desires, my own wants, my own claims to anything. I get rid of me, and it's Christ in me, it's Christ for me, it's Christ through me, it's Christ, it's Christ, it's Christ. And the great problem is that I want Christianity to be about me. Friends, I'd love to pretend that that's not the case. Every pastoring book ever worth its weight explains that the greatest liability to a pastor's ministry is his own self. It's his own sin. It's his own desire for self. I would then apply that to you. The greatest liability for you is yourself. It's how tightly you cling to your own rights. It's how tightly you cling to your own freedoms. 
It's how tightly you cling to your own joys, your own desires, your own whatever it is. And you see, honestly, prior to the church arriving in the United States, what would become the United States, this was one of the primary ways that Christianity was talked about. Now, I'm not a pacifist. I I don't hold that view. But there is a reason that the second the church started growing, pacifism followed it everywhere it went. The idea that we as Christians never retaliate ever. Now again, I, I don't hold that view. But I want to acknowledge that a substantial portion, just under majority of the church, has held that view for approximately 2,000 years. Because they've understood that at the, the beating heart of Christian ethics is that I treat my life with an open hand. And I treat my freedoms with an open hand and I treat my joys with an open hand. And if you want to take them, you can do that. And it's intriguing how, again, the, the very DNA of how our country was created. We've said, you know, don't tread on me. You've got to stay off my turf. You've got to leave me alone. You can't take this from me. And unfortunately, it's infected the church. It's infected the church. It's a poison. You don't believe me? Maybe you think, oh, Michael, you're just overreacting. Eh, maybe I am. Look at the things that make you the angriest. Like most of us, honestly, let's be honest, most of us get angry at some point, particularly men. Right? We have testosterone. It's a liquid anger that pumps through our veins. Look at the things that make you angry and pay attention to how many of those things are simply because someone is not giving you what you think is your right. I mean, the mysterious thing, the thing that's so just overwhelming here is that Jesus is literally saying to pay the men who are going to kill him to fund the temple in which they do not worship him. And he's fully on board with it. I'm going to be honest with you, I can't even conceive of what a church looks like, like the American church, what a denomination looks like that actually puts this into practice. It is so foreign to me. It's like trying to get a fish to describe what it's like to not live in water. Fish has no idea. It's only known water its whole life. I, I can't even begin to explain to you what it would look like if our denomination, if our church was motivated by a willingness to give up our rights freely and easily. I can't describe it to you because I've never seen it. Why don't we do that? Why don't we give up me? Well, there's usually two reasons, I think. They kind of one after the other. The first one is a petulant version of, I don't want to. You may have a more sophisticated version of that answer, but it's usually the toddler version. I don't want to. 
God told me I'm supposed to give up my life, that I'm supposed to lose my life, and in losing it, I find real life. Well, I don't want to. I want me. I want my life. I wanted everything. I want, I want, I want. It's that great, perfect, beautiful character in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I want it all, and I want now. Uh, honestly, I think it, it doesn't take much thought to just realize that's just pure evil. It doesn't take much thought. It does take a bit of honesty. Honesty we don't really like to have, but it, it doesn't take much thought to see that's evil. Once we push through that, though, there's a second response that I think is far more common uh, and one that we actually don't talk about that much at often, and it is abject terror. <laughs> abject terror. If I'm called to give up my life to Jesus, that is a terrifying thing because I don't know how he's going to use it. I mean, when I at least think I'm in control of my own life, I can at least pretend that I know what I'm doing. You get to be an adult of a certain age, you realize you never have any idea what you're doing. You're just constantly winging it from one situation to the next. It's all parenting is, right? Just winging it with the Bible trying to teach you as much as possible. I love how this passage, though, brackets with both the beginning and the end the answer to the terror of giving up my way. Verse 27, don't give offense to them. Don't scandalize them. We don't want them to be offended. We don't want them to sin. We're, we're going to give up our rights. He didn't have to pay this tax. It's a bogus tax in the first place. It's, it's a lie in the first place, much less to fund a temple they don't worship him in. But, anyways, go fishing. And not the type of fishing you're used to. Remember, Peter's a net fisherman. They, they use nets because you had to catch a lot of fish very rapidly so that you're efficient. Uh, here, go do something that you would never have done. Fun fishing. Go take a line and a hook and cast it out into the sea and pull in a fish. And when you get a fish, oh yeah, by the way, it's going to have a coin in its mouth and the coin's going to be the proper amount to pay for both your tax and mine. The two guys who live in Capernaum. You're like, that is a bizarre ending to a very complex story. Actually, it's not. Because I, I think Jesus is actually giving Peter a tremendous object lesson in the fear of letting God rule his life. If God is in control of everything, the only thing that will keep me sane when I give up my freedoms to let him tell me what to do, the only thing that will keep me sane is the knowledge that he is committed to provide for me. Right? I mean, that's really what it comes down to is when I want to run my life my way, what I'm saying is, is I think I can do a pretty doggone good job of it. And for me to let someone else run my life for me is terrifying. And what Jesus is doing here with Peter is saying, look, our God provides. You don't have to worry. He knows what he's doing when he tells us to live the way his Bible does. He's not an idiot. God's not ignorant. He's not a fool. He knows what he's doing. And on top of that, he's actually actively committed to taking care of you. Here, look, here's a coin. I think that's also why the previous handful of verses, 22 and 23, are included in this section as well. 
just prior to arriving at Capernaum. It's kind of tacked in here. Matthew puts it in a bit of an odd place, but I love how it brackets the passage here with, if you are terrified of your life being lived by God's law, remember, he's your provider. If you're, if you're afraid of giving away your freedoms, he's your provider. And if you don't believe that, 22, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Friends, he's literally about to do the very thing he's commanding Peter to do. Did Jesus have to go to the cross? I mean, the Father tells him to, but like there's no like kind of binding reason in the sense of he's not obligated for death. He freely gave up his life for a bunch of murderers and losers like us. He freely delivered himself into the hands of men. He freely delivered himself to be killed. He freely gave up his life on the cross. He freely remained under the power of the grave for a time until he freely raised himself from the dead. He has provided for himself and he will provide for you. You see, the the answer to living a life that is grasped onto white-knuckling it in terror, the answer is not to have more control of your life. The answer is to have less. It's to let the one who has provided, a Savior, a Redeemer, a Victor, let Him run your life. He'll do a much better job. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, even when it is really hard, either difficult intellectually or, in perhaps this case, maybe even more difficult emotionally. I don't like to be told that I cannot do it my way. I like the first half of the passage, really don't like the second half. And we pray that your spirit would be pleased, O God, to convict us of sin and give us the freedom that is given to those who trust Christ to rule our lives, King of our hearts. It's in His name that we pray, amen.